every six months, my work entirely shift. Uh, so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to fire myself. So it's an interesting concept where you see all the things that you're doing where you are a component of a chain and you're trying to remove you from that chain for that chain to work without you. Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. The CIBC Innovation Banking Podcast explores the world of startups, growth stage companies, and late stage companies that have made a big splash in their industries around the world. Montreal-based Potluck has more than 500 clients served by three offices around the world. If you've ever filled out a survey online, chances are you've used Rodolphe Barrère's technology. He co-founded the company in 2014, raised more than $58 million in capital, and says unicorn status is on the horizon. He tells me the secret to his success is firing himself every six months and seeking advice from entrepreneurs who have recently walked his path. But COVID-19 was a path no entrepreneur has had to walk in 100 years. I began by asking the 2021 Forbes Top 30 Under 30 cover boy to explain what Potlock is, like he's explaining it to his mom. We're a survey company, so I'm a pollster. I'm asking people questions. And instead of calling them over their landline, like people do to you, mom, and it's annoying, I'm using social networks. So imagine, mom, that you're on Facebook, which is usually the case. Well, you're going to see a cute little picture of kittens and tagline asking you to answer a couple of questions regarding your grandchildren. And you're going to click on the link and answer these uh, questions for me because the time is right, because the topic is interesting for you, and because there might be an, an interesting incentive for you to get. Could be a donation to a charity of your choice, could be uh, the fact that we're going to plant a tree or something. So this is what we do. We replace phone interview, telephone interview, people who intercept you in the street by uh, leveraging social network. And so you can ensure that the survey topic is relevant to the person who sees it. Exactly. Well, to certain extent, because we uh, on LinkedIn, we know what you do, but we do not necessarily know if you're, uh, you know, if you master a big budget or small budget, et cetera, et cetera. So basically what the algorithm is doing is you're going to have a couple of qualification questions, things that are interesting for us. Let's say we want to know if you own a Chihuahua. Of course, it's impossible to say on LinkedIn if you own a Chihuahua. So the one of the first questions will be, do you own a Chihuahua? And the algorithm, if we're trying to get Chihuahua owners, the algorithm will push populations, the advertising towards population who have a greater propensity to answer yes to Chihuahua. So for example, we'll make correlations, like if there is a creative with a blue car, it tends to attract more Chihuahua owners than people who don't own a Chihuahua, et cetera, et cetera. So th this is basically what we do. We both use the social media targeting capacities and we create our own capacities in a way by using qualification questions to refine the targeting. What's the biggest change in social media, that underlying power for your polling capability What's the biggest change in social media you've seen since 2014 when you launched? First of all, a huge increase in usage. Like people do not realize how much uh, the usage of social media has increased between 2014 and 2022. People tend to, you know, think that they created their Facebook account in 2010, whatever, 2011. 
and that we we had the same uh, social media usage back then, but it was absolutely not the case. The like button did not even exist at that time. The videos were were not even on Facebook. Uh, Instagram was not even there. Like the world has drastically changed over the last uh, we're almost ten years now at Potluck over the last ten years. So of course we needed to adapt. Uh, we've seen the the rise of Snapchat. More re- most recently, we've seen the rise. Of TikTok, we've also seen the rise of LinkedIn. LinkedIn has been booming over the last couple of years. Same for Instagram, the rise of reels, of videos, of live. Uh, all of these are new things. Uh, the different reactions you can, you know, you can do on different posts. The fact that the browser is now within you, you don't have to leave the Facebook app or the Instagram app in order to, you know, when when you're directed to to a new link and and thing like that. So, Everything has changed over the last uh, 10 years and we've been you know, nimble enough to actually adapt our technology to all these new realities as they were coming. The rise of video is fascinating. You know, social media companies are continuing to evolve. So how has video evolved the way you poll people? To be very honest, video has never been the main thing for us to bring respondents on, on surveys because we believe that you know, people who are actually scrolling videos, uh, even on TikTok, we're not super strong on TikTok. We we do have, you know, cool videos and we're able to bring a couple of Gen Z respondents thanks to video. But the thing is, people who are actually browsing uh, videos and watching seven seconds video are not necessarily in the path where they want to take five, six, seven minutes to answer a survey because it's, it's too long. However, we've always preferred static ads because static ads actually refer usually to articles, things like that, that are a little bit longer to actually consume. As you can guess, like a, a 10 minutes long article is, is, is longer by definition than a seven second video. So we tend to attract more people who are in that pace versus people that are uh, consuming video. So uh, just to, 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 to recap, we're, we're, able to track respondents thanks to video, specifically young, younger demographics. But overall, we've always been better with uh, static images. Is it fair to say Potluck has grown along with social media? What stage is the company at right now? We're 230 employees. We're deployed over 30 different geographies, different countries. We're, we're generating millions and millions of, of revenue. So we've grown a lot. And the, and the last Series B, which is a, which is a public number I can share, uh, was 35 million six months ago. So we're, we're at a Series B stage, scale-up stage, growth stage. Uh, you can use different semantic here to call our stage. But yes, we've grown with social media, that's for sure. I would say more than that, that eight years ago, people thought we were completely crazy to think that one day we could source survey respondents over social media. And today, as we advance and we move forward in the in the industry, it becomes more and more obvious that uh, this is the future, that telephone interviews uh, will die, et cetera, et cetera. So to us, uh, eight years ago, uh, it sounded like, like something completely obvious, but it took a while for our industry, the $100 billion survey industry, to realize that uh, it's actually an obvious move. So now a lot of uh, different uh, big companies within our space are trying to replicate what we're doing. Uh, but the sad truth is we're uh, not only we're, we're nimble because we're a startup and we've been able to pivot several times in order to nail our product market fit, but we also have eight years of uh, R&D and, and you know, financing and, and a very specific and, um, and, and specialized team able to work on our technology. So 
we're at a point where we're uncatchable in terms of the technology we've developed. Okay, so technically you would be considered a growth stage company, but you're also well on track to be called a unicorn. How has the financial crisis affected that timeline? So unicorn, a mythical animal of the startup uh, startup <laughs> world. Um, so yeah, we're on track to become a unicorn. We're not a unicorn yet. So the current financial crisis is, uh, of course, something we're, we're paying a, a close look at. Uh, several things. So first of all, we are in an industry, which is the market research industry, that tr- historically has a negative correlation with an economical downturn. Why this? Because when there is more uncertainty on the market. People need to back their decision with market research. Uh, people need job security, so they need to back their gut feeling with market research. Uh, people need to uh, spend less money in more focused areas, so they need to make wise choices and they use market research to back these choices. So we are in a good industry once again. So that's pure luck. It was the same during COVID. Uh, you know, we weren't in the travel or uh, even the industry. We we're in the market research industry. All the consume, consuming uh, habits were changing. So we thrive during COVID. And this will be this will be the case again in this financial crisis. So th- just the fact that we're a research technology is almost something that makes us recession-proof. And the second point is uh, we've been lucky or visionary enough to, to raise just uh, before the crisis. So we're in a very good situation in terms of our balance sheet, in terms of our runway, etc. So we have room ahead of us to see things coming and to, and to adjust uh, with the wind. So we're very confident with the approach of that crisis. Of course, I can't tell it's a good thing. The last thing is, you know, in terms of you've got a couple of companies that defended a crazy valuation just because the market was highly competitive over the last couple of years and who need to grow in their valuation. Otherwise, they'll be forced to do a down round in order to extend their runway. We're not in that situation. I've always been a bon père de famille kind of approach. I've always been quite European, quite cautious in my approach. I've never burned all, all the money I've raised in ne- the next six months. Like a lot of the moves that I've done in the past were judged uh, way too cautious by, by a lot of American VCs. And today, acting the way I act, doing the things I do, is what the VC firms are asking their entrepreneurs to do. So in a way, we've always acted uh, more reasonably than the vast majority of, of other startups, which is actually paying off uh, as we speak, entering into that economical crisis. So Potlock finds itself in an enviable position amongst pollsters. With more than 1.7 million respondents and growing, it's leveraging social media in ways others never thought to do. But the biggest challenge this startup turned growth company faced prior to COVID-19 was scaling. And Barrer tells me that the biggest challenge to scaling that a founder can experience isn't about valuation and meeting key performance indicators. It's about scaling oneself. It's really true, actually. Everything starts from the co-founder. So we're two. Um, I'm not alone. But yes, scaling myself has been and is still one of the most complex challenges I'm facing because the CEO you have to be when you're a company of two, then the CEO you have to be when you're a company of 10, when you're a company of 50, when you're a company of 150, when you're a company of 230 people today, these are different profiles. And I'm always asking, am I the right guy for the next job? Uh, Am I, let's say we're, we're, again, we're 230 people today. Let's forecast ourselves and say we're going to be a thousand employees in a, in a couple of years, will I still be the good guy if one day we become public? Will, am I a good uh, CEO of a public company? 
and it's not you know false modesty or or, or so on. Like I, I I have close to zero ego. I just want to make sure I'm not becoming the bottleneck of the of the growth of my own creation because that's my worst nightmare. Like I don't want to hang to my job and to my title if you can destroy my creation. Like potluck to me, my baby company, if you will, uh, is way more important than my personal career. So all of this to say that philosophically, um, it's something hard to do, but it's very very important. I've always put what's good for potluck first versus what's good for me. So scaling myself means a lot of things and, and I don't have time to disclose all of that because it will be, it's uh, eight years of, of work, of course, on myself and personal development and so on. Uh, but I've got a few tricks that I'm using all the time. I consider my work is almost addressed, like entirely changing every six months. So it's it's quite intense, but every six months, my work entirely shifts. Uh, so what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to fire myself. So it's an interesting concept where you see all the things that you're doing where you are a component of a chain and you're trying to remove you from that chain for that chain to work without you, basically. So I'm trying to fire myself, uh, which is a good way to empower my, uh, you know, the middle management, my leadership team as well. I'm a very good innovator. I'm very good at creating things. And the thing is, if I'm locked into operating things that I've launched six months ago, well, I don't have the bandwidth in time and even like intellectually uh, speaking to actually create the next things, which is my role. My role is to create the next things, like create the next financing, the next innovation, the next product, the next go-to-market strategy, uh, attract the next big talent at Potluck and so on. So I have to be constantly uh, uh, working on what's next for us long-term. And I can't do that if I'm stuck into the operations. But in the meantime, you can't really not be in the operations because you have to go in the, into the details as well. So it's a balance you need to find because you need to start operating things, nail things down. And then once it's nailed and you think you've uh, brought to the table everything you could have brought to the table, then it's time to pass it to someone else and to delegate it and then go to your next innovation. So that's what I call uh, scale yourself. And it's, uh, it's something that I see way too often, unfortunately, like people get stuck into operations because they are adding value, but they're not adding more value than anybody else. And they should try to fire themselves uh, as, as quickly as they can in order to keep producing innovative content. So at some point you have to make a decision. Do you continue to grow yourself or do you just turn things over? You've clearly decided to keep growing. Why not just turn things over and buy yourself a boat? We've had a couple of uh, acquisition offers in the past. So I could have been, uh, you know, 30 years old millionaire. Uh, I had several opportunities to do so. I've decided not to take these opportunities. So it's, uh, first of all, it's a long, long, um, you know, thinking process. But basically, you know, it's, it's pretty simple, uh, you know, uh, writing down the things that make me happy versus the things that have close to zero importance to me. Uh, and things that make me happy is uh, the capacity to gather people I like around me uh, on a common project, the capacity to do whatever I want, whenever I want, when I think it's right, uh, with... Uh, close to zero uh, control where well, I do have a board, but uh, basically, you know, people trust my execution skills. So I have tons of freedom. I, I have one of the work in the world where, where, where you have uh, lots of freedom, which is super important for me, freedom of move. Then I can work with the people I want. And then my personal driver on a day-to-day, -day, what makes me get out of bed every morning and, and with the same energy to hustle every single day uh, in the last eight years is that capacity to, to learn new things. 
every single day uh, I'm learning new things. I'm meeting with pretty incredible person. My my title, my role, name it, my my position, um, I should say, uh, gives me the opportunity to meet with outstanding individuals that I would have never been able to meet without uh, being the CEO of a, of a scale-up. So all of these aligned, you know, the fact that you can grow, that you can learn new things, that you can surround yourself with the people you choose, the fact that you have freedom of move, which is uh, close to be uh, perfectly absolute, the fact that you're meeting with outstanding individuals uh, just because of your situation, you know, that what makes me continue versus exiting the company and buying myself a boat, uh, which uh, I could have done in the past. Well, the thing is, boat is fun week one and maybe week two, but week three, well, what's the point? So um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm very happy and, and maybe you can tell it by the ton of my voice. I'm, I'm very happy and, and genuinely accomplished and, uh, and I'm embracing my role uh, very much. I'm very happy to actually employ 230 happy employees uh, that fit our culture and, and give professional happiness to 230 people. That drives me and money is a driver, but a secondary or tertiary driver to me. So how do you keep yourself growing? First of all, I, I read a lot. You've got plenty of books. You know, mastering business is less complex than mastering architecture or arts or music. Or you have way more books on history than you have on, on business. On business, to me, you have maybe 50 books you have to read in your career uh, in order to have a complete view of how you should scale, let's say, entrepreneurship. Uh, that I call business, but let's say entrepreneurship. So I've not even read these 50 books, but I must have read 20, 30 of them. And I've learned a great deal um, thanks to many of them. So that's point number one. I'm reading a lot. Point number two, which is almost more important, I've always been surrounded by amazing mentors. So, uh, you know, there is a say that you're, you're, you're the sum of the, or the average of the five closest individuals you have around you. So I'm really trying to surround myself with, with amazing entrepreneurs, amazing uh, mentors uh, that are making me grow without necessarily realizing that they are making me grow. So I've got a couple of mentors like Guillaume Jacquet, who have been there from day one, who were actually elevators uh, for, for my career and helped me uh, a lot to grow. And lastly, um, I must say that uh, it's not only my brain, we really have two brains, my co-founder and I, and we share every single learning on a daily basis. So I'm, I've got one hour, my routine, morning routine is one hour call with my co-founder who is based out of Paris. So we start by one hour call and we share everything we've learned in the last 24 hours since last time we spoke. So a lot of things are, of course, uh, linked to uh, to the company and different decisions and different things we're, we're doing. But Kim and I were reading a lot, reading a lot of articles, speaking with a lot of people, etc. So we're two brains and we're sharing all that content. So we're basically absorbing content of two brains and, and sharing it. So I must say that the amazing relationship I have with my co-founder, who is literally my office wife, also contributed a lot to my to my personal growth because I've been able to absorb uh, what what like two individuals can absorb, basically. Firing yourself to hand off day-to-day -day responsibilities of the next big thing to the smart people you've hired just makes sense. And if you're going to be a founder who fights the founder's dilemma of when to hand over the reins of the company to someone else, you're going to need support, not just from those below you, but from those above you too. 
Ferrer turns to mentors who can challenge his assumptions with credibility. And over the last two years, he's had to challenge his assumptions about the company's strategy and the so-called great resignation. He tells me surrounding himself with other entrepreneurs helps ensure continued growth, but experience isn't the only criteria. So people who are at least one stage ahead of me, but not 10 stages ahead of me, like people who are 10 stages ahead of me tend to forget what it was at stage seven because they are stage 17. Uh, so it was a while ago and they don't really remember the difference between stage six and stage eight. And it actually matters. So people who are like a couple of stages in, ahead of me are usually the best mentors, first of all. Secondly, uh, mentors need to be my friends. I've got that weird relationship with my work where I need to have fun. I need to be good moment. I genuinely enjoy my work uh, and mentors are people I see over drinks uh, at night, etc. And I need to, like everything is mixed actually. I need to be able to have fun and, and chat about life on top of chatting about business. It can't be only about business uh, with a mentor. It has, to be, it has to be further than that. So that would be the second point. And third point is my mentors all have this they all, because we all have our own experience, because I'm trying to mentor myself, so I'm trying not to fall into the classical uh, traps. You have a given experience at Potluck, let's say, scaling uh, the compensation of the sales team, all right? Uh, you, a good mentor needs to really understand the difference between the theory, what worked at his previous or current company, and what would work, uh, and the little tweaks that needs to be done in order for that very a sales compensation plan to be efficient uh, in, in the business you're mentoring. Because there is nothing, like like there is always 80% of theory that works everywhere and 20% of uh, adaptation. And if you're trying to fit a square in a, in a circle, it will, it will never fit. It's very important to realize that every single business is unique by a sense and you need to adapt a little bit. And my mentors, I've always understood that. I've always understood that there is a theory and then there is a theory applied to potluck with the little tweaks that make the magic happen. Um, and, they, and, and, and they've all understand that. And it's super important. How did your mentors help you through the course of the pandemic? There was so much talk uh, about the revenue drying up during the pandemic, a wave of resignations, the great resignation. How did you address all that? So, first of all, it was a couple of very interesting years, difficult but interesting years. I named myself chief COVID officer for a while because, you know, we had several things to deal with. Uh, we had, of course, the uh, economical downturn, but all the sanitary guidelines, like, you know, I didn't have any office management or HR resources at this, at this time. So people were asking me, like, should we come back to the office? How many? Should we wear a mask? Should we do wash hands? If I'm not vaccinated, can I come? Like I had to be to decide all these things during. Now it's it's pretty much done, but I had to decide uh, all these things almost on a weekly basis. We were changing the rules of office presence, of uh, you know meeting in person, of recruitment, of remote, uh, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that was the first challenge uh, we needed to address. For this one, for the one like office presence, etc., I've followed my own path because we've fought like crazy to reopen the office and keep the offices as open as we could uh, during that crisis. So we've been really closed, like fully closed over, let's say we had two years of pandemic. We've been really closed for like two months, April, May 2020. And since then, we've been open with 
tons of different conditions, a number of people, mass, social distanciation, vaccination. But we, we managed to keep the, the office open to keep our culture, which is super important, which is uh, instrumental to our growth, to keep our culture alive. So that's point one. Point two, I'll try to speed up. Point two was around, you know, the economical downturn and the economy crashing and all these uh, boosters in the economy and so on. Uh, so we had to pivot in terms of business model because we, pre-COVID, uh, our main client vertical uh, where was actually real estate and retail. So suddenly our entire clientele collapsed overnight. And, and the last thing shopping mall owner wanted to do was to survey their clientele because they didn't have any, right? So we had to shift entirely. And this is when we did a, a, a shift that ended up being an, an amazing pivot. Uh, we shifted towards uh, selling to consulting firms and big brands instead of only selling to retailers and, and real estate. And, and, and that move paid off big time, uh, well, is still paying off big time two years later. And then the last piece, because you you, you mentioned and, and used this terminology, the great resignation. Uh, we didn't have that at Potluck, uh, fortunately, because I think it's really linked to point one. I, str- I personally strongly believe that we have an amazing and unique culture at Potluck. It's not a universal culture. It's not made for everyone, but we recruit people that are matching that culture uh, where, where it's a match in heaven. So we know we have an amazing fit between our culture and the people uh, working at Potluck, what we call the Potluckers sometimes. And basically, we fought like crazy to keep our offices open in order for us to be able to nurture and keep that amazing culture. Another thing that I do is I, 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 I give a weekly all-ends where I gather all the troops every Monday morning. We do a 360 view of the company. We have guest stars and we give everything. We put everything on the table. So we've been very transparent in uh, in the way we managed uh, the crisis at Potluck. We had a couple of uh, COVID clusters as well. So we had to manage all sort of things. Um, but I think what, what really made us thrive was uh, fighting like crazy to defend above all things our culture uh, based on transparency, based on over-communication and so on. If there was one thing you'd like a startup entrepreneur to take away from our conversation, what would it be? Culture to me is the most important thing. It's your main competitive advantage and so on. And a lot of people, you know, you've got, you can find a lot of theory around the culture. The thing is a lot of people, for a lot of people, it's not natural what you should be doing. Like culture is intangible. Like what do you do if you're starting with this toxic culture? Uh, it's like your, you know, your starting point is a toxic culture. How do you course correct, et cetera, et cetera. And I've got one tip for that, which has worked wonderfully. And, and I'm, I'm giving that tip to a lot of people that, are, that I'm advising on the culture aspect is to take, you know, a lot of people are trying to, to determine values for the company. So what you should be doing as an entrepreneur is to be really honest with yourself. Look at yourself in a mirror and take your personal values and make them the values of the company. This is what I've done with my co-founder and I, we're super friends. We've taken our values, the things that are the most important for you, the things that we know we won't have to fake, the things that we know that even when we're going to be super tired and not uh, able to play a persona or character, whatever, we know we'll be a role model of these values because this is really who we are, and we made them uh, our, our, our corporate values. And then we've hired and, 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 and laid off, et cetera, based and promoted based on uh, those values. But that's the best advice I can give 
is to take your personal values. In our case, it's my values are are learning. I've, I've told that actually earlier in the in the call. It's one of my main, if not my main driver, learning. Then transparency. Pretty sure you can tell I'm a very transparent person. Like you don't have to read between the lines. There is nothing to read between the lines. I call a spade a spade. Period. Uh, and I'm, and I tell what I think and I think what I what I tell. Period. So I'm very transparent. I'm blunt sometimes for some people, but that's it. It's just me. Uh, uh, thirdly, I'm very ambitious. That you can tell as well. So ambition is a third value of the company. Uh, I want to I want to do a huge company, and I'm and I'm proud to tell that. So people who are joining us need to be ambitious. If they're not ambitious, they won't fit the value. And lastly, uh, I'm 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 a team player. I have a huge team spirit. I love people. I love being surrounded with people. I love having fun. I love partying. I'm a party animal. All of this defines who I am as an individual. And I made them the company uh, corporate values. And if people feel that Potluck has real values today and that we're embracing those values, it's just because they were my personal values, first of all. Barrere was named one of Forbes magazine's top 30 under 30 in 2021, just under the wire. He turned 30 in 2022. But the co-founder of Potluck still believes that the secret to his success lies in turning to those older or wiser than him, while trusting those younger and more junior to him to take his ideas and run with them. Unicorn status is still a few years away. In the meantime, he'll just keep doing what he does best, firing himself and looking for the next big thing for him and the company. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening.